You're listening to the We Love Equity Real Estate Show, a podcast that discusses the intricacies of real estate investing with your host, Marcus E. Maloney. Marcus is a real estate investor best known for being the equity king. He's been awarded that moniker because he and his team find amazing real estate deals. He will be talking with investors who have done some transformational things in the real estate industry. They'll discuss their process, their strategies, and how their investments transform their lives and the communities they invest in. We welcome you to the We Love Equity Real Estate Show. There are no shortcuts. Yep. There's no easy way to learn how to estimate rehab costs. Now, on the bright side, if there was an easy way to estimate rehab costs accurately, everybody and their brother would be in real estate. Yeah. The We Love Equity Show is brought to you by Azria, widely recognized as an outstanding resource for real estate investors with exceptional education, networking, and support, along with profit-enhancing benefits and all aspects of real estate investing. Visit Azria at www.azria.org. That's visit Azria at www.azria.org. Hey, we love Equity Real Estate family. How are you on today? Guys, I am really, really happy on today. We had a wonderful weekend, so I'm recording this on a Monday. You guys will be receiving this on a Monday, and I'm excited because I have Mr. Jay Scott with us on the air. And Jay, if you haven't been around in real estate, um, I'm pretty sure you'll bump into Jay somewhere. He is an author. He is a single family operator. He's a multifamily syndicator and operator. He's doing some passive income investing, but he's also known for being on bigger pockets quite a bit. So he was previously the host of the Bigger Pockets business podcast. And then also he has written tons of articles, tons of books for bigger pockets as well. So Jay, man, I want to welcome you to the show. How are you today? I am doing great, Marcus. I appreciate uh, you having me here. Look forward to chatting. Great, great, great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being here. So you're based out of Sarasota, Florida, correct? And you're doing some things up there. What I want to talk to you about a little bit today is you have your wife. She works with you, Carol. Um, sorry, she couldn't be on the show today, but I, I guarantee you I'll get her on the show. But tell me, how did you guys, because your story is a little interesting. How did you guys go from transitioning from the corporate world to investing and how did that happen? Yeah. It, so everybody expects a really cool and interesting story. And, and for the most part, it's not. So we both worked in the, in the tech world. We were in Silicon Valley. We were in Northern California doing the tech thing. She worked for eBay. I worked for Microsoft. And we met back in 2006. We dated for a couple of years. We were both working ridiculous hours. Like she was working like 80 hours a week. She was traveling three and a half weeks a month. I was working ridiculous number of hours, traveling a couple of weeks a month. So in 2008, when we decided to get married and, and decided to start a family, we realized that what we had in the corporate world just wasn't sustainable. We wanted to raise a family. We wanted to put lifestyle over work. Obviously, we still wanted to work, but we wanted to kind of flip the, the script. And instead of putting work first and family second, we wanted to put family first and work second. Gotcha. So literally the, the day we decided to get married, the day I proposed, we decided let's quit our corporate jobs and go find something else to do that would allow us to put our family for, and whether that was going to be build a business or invest or get a different type of job, we had no idea. We just knew that we had to make that decision and we had to execute on that decision quickly because it's really easy to get sucked back into just the comfortable, hey, we're yep. working, we're working too much. So literally the week after we got engaged, we put in our notice at our jobs. And in the summer of 2008, we moved from Northern California to Atlanta, Georgia, which don't ask me how we got to Atlanta. <laughs> I think we made a list of criteria and it, it put us there. This was 2008. This was, we, we hadn't decided we were going to invest in real estate. We didn't know what we were going to do. We were literally in the middle of the Great Recession, probably the, the worst part of the downturn yeah. from 2008. We were in Atlanta, which anybody that was investing in Atlanta or knew Atlanta knew, it was one of the hardest hit areas in the country. I mean, you couldn't drive down a street and not see 50% of the houses in foreclosure. 
Uh, prices had dropped in some places 30, 40, 50%. It was crazy. Well, for some reason, my wife was watching a TV show one morning and it was HGTV. It was a flip show. And she said, while we're trying to figure out what we want to do with our lives, let's flip a house. Let's do this. And yeah, let's do it. I'm not a handy guy. I mean, you don't want me swinging a hammer. You don't want me. <laughs> we had literally just bought our first house ever, the one we were living in. So we had no real estate experience whatsoever, but she's a designer and she just liked the idea. And I wanted her to marry me. So I said, yeah, anything you want, let's flip a house. And yep. so we yep. spent the next few months researching what it takes to, mm -hmm. to flip houses and talking to other investors out there. Summer of 2008, literally the day we got married, we closed on our first property. Wow. And we had no idea what we were doing, but a week later we closed on our second property. So wait, 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 Jay, let's, let's kind of go back just a little bit because that's a big leap to say, we're going to quit our corporate jobs in IT, just assuming you're up in Silicon Valley. I'm sure that you guys were probably making, if not six figures, close to six figures, both of you guys, and you decided to leave there and go to Atlanta. I mean, yep. did you, did you guys have a, a, did you have a savings that you were relying upon? Kind of how did you make that transition? Because a lot of people are scared to do that. They're scared to walk off that job and say, you know what, we're going to try something totally different. Yeah. And I'm not going to lie. I mean, I know a lot of people have the story. I moved to wherever I had $5 in my pocket yep. and I didn't, I was sleeping in my car. We weren't like that. We were very fortunate. We okay. were making good money. We had a little bit of savings. So we knew that worst case, we could try something we had, we could, we could spend six months or a year trying something, figuring something out. And if we didn't, well, worst case, we go back to, to our jobs. To your jobs. Uh, okay. And so, so the scariest thing for us was simply what happens if we're a little bit successful? Because one of the unwritten rules of the tech world is once you're out for more than a year or two, it's really tough to get back in. People don't look at you the same way in that, in that industry. They like to see the continuity and technology moves quickly. So if right, you're out of it right. for a year or two, they're like, okay, you're, you're just, you're not in the scene anymore. So we knew we literally had about a year, maybe two years to figure out if we could figure out something else before we had to commit to either staying out of the industry or going back to the industry. Okay. So for us, it was less of a really short-term concern of not having enough money to live. It was more of a one year, one and a half year concern of we need to figure out if we're going to really move forward or if we're going to go back. Yeah. Cause so, that's, that's completely different because most people have that short runway that's had a longer runway, but you had to make a critical decision because it was like, either we do this and be successful or it's over. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. So we, we basically knew that we had to figure out what we wanted to do and go all in. Okay. So house flipping was never going to be that thing. Like literally we were trying to figure out what we wanted to do when we decided to flip that first house and we came across two houses at the same time that we liked, that we said, let's, let's pick one of these. We ended up picking both. So we closed on our first two flips the same week. And again, this, wow. wasn't, this wasn't going to be our business. This was just going to be something fun we were going to do while we figured out what our business was going to be. So we closed on those first two properties. Luckily, we bought the second one right after the first because the first didn't go very well. So did you, we, did, you, did you guys find these properties just traditional ways through the MLS because the market was down and everything like that? So we actually found them through a wholesaler. Okay. And in retrospect, he was not a good wholesaler. He wasn't very ethical. These weren't, which was crazy. Back in 2008, I mean, it was hard to find a bad deal. Yeah. There were so many good deals out there. I mean, it was difficult to sell, but it was really easy to buy below market. And so- this wholesaler showed us a couple of deals. Both of them ended up being not so great deals, but we realized, hey, if we're going to do this, I mean, we had looked at a hundred houses and said, no, I, I was terrified to, to, to make a commitment. And finally, my wife said, next house we find, we're, we're buying it. We're we doing have to it. Jump in and we'll learn that way. And so we found two on the same day. We ended up moving forward on both. First one was a complete mess. I mean, we made every mistake in the book. Second one luckily went pretty well. 
So what so, were what were what were some of those mistakes that you made on that first one? Because with it being 2008, like you said, you yep. could find off market deals everywhere. It wasn't finding them; it was once you did the rehab, trying to list it and trying to get a good price for it. So, just kind of what were some of those mistakes that you made as a newbie? coming in. And I know being in IT, and I don't want to generalize, but you said it yourself, you were kind of analytical. You were like, you know, looked at a hundred deals and none of them worked. So. Yeah. So I'm not gonna lie. We made every mistake. And when I say every mistake at the beginning, we paid too much for the property. And there's a, there's a saying in real estate, you make money when you buy. And what that means is you need to buy low to overcompensate for any mistakes that can be made later. So buying low is really the key to to having good real estate deals. We didn't buy low. We bought very close to market uh, price for both of those properties, especially especially the first one. So we overpaid. Number two, we underestimated our rehab costs. So big mistake that, that most investors make is that you assume best case for everything. You assume you're not going to run into any surprises. You assume your contractors aren't going to overcharge you. You assume that you're going to get the best materials at the lowest price because you're going to find some amazing supplier. And then you assume you know how much things cost. But we didn't know any of those things. And at the end of the day, our, our rehab costs just soared. Okay. So overpaid for the, for the property being new. How did you guys do your analysis of the property? So back then we didn't, we relied on the whole, we we made that mistake that a lot of new, that a lot of new investors make, which is we trusted the wholesaler, the wholesaler. And, and there are people out there who will trust the real estate agent. They'll trust an appraiser. They'll trust a wholesaler. They'll trust another investor who's helping them. Most important thing here is don't ever trust anybody without verifying. In this business, one, there are a lot of people who don't have your best interest at heart. But two, even those people that do have your best interest at heart, they may not know what they're talking about. And we like to assume if somebody knows more than we do, that they know everything. That they know everything. But in a lot of cases, they don't. And so in retrospect, this wholesaler didn't have our best interest at heart. But I've worked with real estate agents and appraisers and brokers and banks over the years who all tried to give us good information but in retrospect, didn't because they just didn't know enough. So I'm a big fan of really figuring out how to factor these things in for yourselves, figure out how to do things for yourself, figure out how to run the numbers yourself. Yep. And while getting input from other people in the business, especially people who are entrenched in the business, professionals in the business is important. At the end of the day, this is your deal. Yep. This is your money. This is your family that's expecting you to, to make Before, a profit and yep. put, put, put food on the table. And so it's up to you to verify that anything you're being told by anybody is accurate. There you go. And Jay, that's, that's very key. And a lot of people want to rely on the salesperson, you know, just like you and you and your wife did, you relied on the salesman. And yep. looking back, I know you were like, Hey, this is the wrong move, but you wanted to get into the real estate space. So it was like, all right, let's just do it. So guys, always remember to run your own numbers. If you don't know how to run your own numbers, you know, reach out. We can make sure you get all of the information you need on how to run comps. And there's tons of information out there. So one, you overpay for the property. And then two, you are overly op- optimistic on your rehab costs. Yep. That was the first two mistakes. <laughs> yep. But there were two others. So the next thing we made a mistake on was our holding costs. So a lot of investors don't think about the fact that it costs money to hold properties. Even if you pay cash and you don't have to pay interest payments every month or or mortgage payments every month, you still have other costs. There's property taxes that you're paying every month. There's insurance that you're paying Mm -hmm. every month. You might have to get the lawn cut. You might have to get snow cleared. You have utilities that you're paying for. There's all of these costs that you don't think about. And the longer you hold the property, the more these costs add up. So if you go into a property thinking, okay, I can flip this thing in two months or three months, well, you might factor in two or three months worth of taxes, insurance, lawn care, that sort of thing. But what happens if you end up holding the property for six or 12 months because you can't sell it? Now, I know today that's not an issue. Everybody's like, ah, if I, once I finish the rehab, I'm going to sell this thing in three days. Right, this right. Was back, this was back in 2008 when properties literally sat for six or eight or 10 months and it wasn't that easy to sell a property. So 
back then I'm thinking, okay, this project's going to take three months and I factor in my taxes and insurance. It ends up taking a lot longer than three months. I didn't think about my other costs, my utilities, my lawn care, uh-huh. second pro- property, we got uh, a loan. So I had my loan costs, all of these things that you tend not to think about until it's too late. Didn't factor in all of my closing costs. So I didn't know what it cost to buy a property. Didn't factor in all of my selling costs. I didn't know what it cost to sell a property. So these are the things a lot of people call them holding costs. I like to call them the fixed costs. Yep. So you have the cost when you buy, the cost while you're holding, and the cost while you're selling. And people tend to think of those as kind of nominal costs, but that could end up being 15 or 20% of the entire project cost. And if you're going to make 15% profit on a deal, if you don't factor in all of these fixed costs, that can literally make the difference between profit and loss. And loss. Absolutely, guys. So, man, Jay, that was was good right there, guys. You got to know your numbers. You got to. I am an optimist, but when it comes to doing fix and flips and rehabs, you know what? I'm very, very conservative. So I I scale everything back. Yes, I have this pie in the sky dream at the beginning, at the beginning, but then I look at that spreadsheet and I'm like, okay, we're going to add another 5% here. We're going to add another 5% cost here and things like that. Just, just so for those additional holding costs, you know, and sometimes you have to provide seller concessions you know so seller concessions is you got an fha buyer and they say hey i want you to pay our closing costs i want you to fix this or redo this or something like that so you got to make sure you have those costs baked in so that was three what was number four jay number four was the final piece the selling piece so again i trust i trusted the wholesaler when the wholesaler said to me you'll be able to resell this property easily for x and at the time, I think it was, it was actually pretty cheap. It was like $130,000. What we realized was we couldn't sell it for anywhere near that amount. Ouch. So, so again, we trusted the wholesaler. We shouldn't have, but we overestimated our sale price. So we literally made a mistake in every piece of the process. We made a mistake when we bought. We made a mistake while we were rehabbing. We made a mistake while we were holding. And then we made a mistake at resale. And those are the four big places you can make a mistake when you're doing a flip. We made them in all four. But you still survived. We still survived. We ended up, well, here, here's the crazy. I am always very conservative. And if I have one piece of advice for every investor out there, especially the new investors, be conservative. You said it yourself. Add 5% here. Add 10% there. Be conservative every step of the way because we got very lucky. So that deal, it took us two years to sell. We ended up renting it out for about a year and a half. Actually, it was about three years to sell because it took us about a year to get to the point where we said we're going to rent it out. We rented it out for a year and a half. Tenants moved out in the middle of the night one night. We didn't even realize it. We realized they moved out when we got a call from the police that there had been a break-in at the house. Somebody broke in. Luckily, there was nothing there to steal at the the time. And at that point, we had done a whole bunch of flips. So we're like, okay, let's re- rehab it. Let's do a whole nother rehab. And then we can put it on the market again. The market had improved somewhat. So at the end of the day, we made $3,000 on that first flip. Took three years. We had about a hundred and some thousand dollars of our own cash into the deal because that was the first deal we we bought. We've actually paid cash Cash for it, which that was a mistake as well. And so we made about $3,000 over three years on a deal. We had over a hundred thousand dollars locked up. So Terrible. we made a profit. We made a profit. Yeah. We were thrilled, but we made every mistake in the book along the way. Terrible return, but you got a great lesson from it yep. and you still made a little bit of money on it. So guys, take it from Jay. Don't make the mistakes, but you can't be scared to get out there and take the risk yep. and do what you need to do because at some point you're going to have to learn. Either you're going to learn by paying a mentor thousands of dollars yep. or you're going to learn by pan and mistakes. I'm a big fan of books. I've written four books. I I like people to read my books, but I'll tell you, you will learn more from doing that first deal than every book you read your entire life. You got to get out there. You got to take action. You got to do a deal. And like you said, yeah, maybe you won't make any money. Maybe you'll even lose a little bit of money, but that's an education that you're getting. And typically flipping, if you're, if you're highly conservative and you're careful, it's hard to lose a lot of money flipping. I mean, we've done now close to 500 flips. We've lost money on literally one deal. 
And we've made mistakes along the way. We've made mistakes in all 500 of those deals. Hopefully we've made a, a lot fewer mistakes in, in, in the last hundred or last 200, hundred. Yeah. the first hundred or 200, but we make mistakes every day. And the great thing about making mistakes is we learn from them. And we, we are very careful every time we make a mistake, the team, we talk about it. My wife and I, we talk about it. So that way, the next time we do it, we don't make that same mistake. And so that's the goal, not to not make mistakes. The goal is to never make the same mistake twice. There you go. There you go. That's great. So guys, get out there, take action. But at the same time, you just have to understand that not everything is going to be perfect. If everything was perfect, you will have thousands and thousands and thousands of people walking off their jobs to flip houses. But you yep. know what happened? Things happen. Mistakes happen. And Jay, you showed a level of fortitude and a level of perseverance that even though this property is going south, it's like, okay, we're going to stick with it. You know, you and Carol yep. said, we're going to stick with it. We're going to do other, other deals. So yep. let me, let me ask you this real quick, Jay, how important is it to have your spouse working with you? Someone that you can talk to and bounce ideas and things off of. Yeah, my wife and I talk about this all the time. And I think one of the reasons why we've been successful in so many things we do, and we do things in real estate, outside of real estate, we have other businesses and investments. And we've been, we've been very fortunate and successful, most of them, not necessarily because we do things better than everybody else, or we do things differently than everybody else, but because we have each other to support each other. And we're both on the same page. We both have the same, not necessarily the same risk tolerance. She's a little bit more uh, risk tolerant than I am. I'm a little bit more risk averse, but we trust each other and we both support each other in our goals. We support each other in our dreams and we support each other in our businesses day to day. And the fact that literally on the day we got engaged, we both said, hey, we should probably quit our high paying jobs in yeah. Silicon Valley to go do something we don't know what we're going to do. And we, we agreed on that in like five minutes. That was a good sign. So what I like to tell people is have this discussion with your spouse and don't jump into something before you at least know how your spouse feels about it. I see too many people that say, yeah, I went out and I, I bought my first house to flip and I told my wife about it afterwards and she was livid. Well, that's not a discussion you have after you right, buy a right. house. That's a discussion you have up front. And if your spouse isn't on board, well, have that discussion. Figure out what it is that, that is, is bothering them. Figure out what it is that scares them. Figure out what it is that they're apprehensive about and then address that. Maybe it's a risk thing. Maybe it's a financial risk thing, but maybe it's something completely different. Maybe it's a, they're concerned that if you're flipping a house, you're not going to have as much time to spend with the kids. If you go out and you start flipping houses, oh my God, maybe you're going to, to find something you love without me and I'm just scared of losing you. Who knows what the issue is? We always assume the issue is financial risk tolerance, but I know a lot of people whose spouses don't support their investing for reasons completely other than financial risk. And so have this discussion with your spouse, figure out if they're not on board, why they're not on board and work through it. Figure out a compromise. Maybe that compromise is let's do one deal and yep. let's do it together. Or maybe they don't want to be involved. I'll do it all by myself and I'll bring my own cash and I won't touch the stuff in our joint savings account. Whatever that is, have that discussion and find a compromise. Because what I've found is if your spouse is on board after that first deal, they're more likely to say, ah, now I see yep. how this works. Now I see that whatever my hesitation was, wasn't really, or really shouldn't have been a concern and they start to get on board. And yeah. so if, if you treat them like a partner the whole way, eventually there, there's a much greater chance that they're going to, they're going to come around and say, yeah, let's do this together. Yeah. And, and like you said, Jay, you got to have that communication guys. You got to, if, if they're not on board in the beginning, you walk them through the process every step of the way. And you say, hey, okay, babe, you don't want to do this. I'm going to get out here. I'm going to take the shot. I'm going to try it. You continue to work or you continue to do what you're doing. But I'm going to show you every step of the way what I'm doing. And at the end of, at the, end of the project, let's kind of regroup, kind of talk, talk through it. And then you guys can come to a consensus and make a decision. Because maybe your partner, like you said, just don't see it. 
or they have hidden fears, or sometimes they just don't want to be a part of it. And you got to be able to accept that, you know, but in a partnership, you got to be able to communicate and have that, have that conversation up front. Yeah. And here's the crazy thing. We like to think that a partner not being on board is the biggest issue in a relationship when it comes to investing. But what I found is more times than not, it's not that the, the partner is not on board. It's that the partner is on board. And now there's this struggle between yep. the, the, the spouses or the partners where they end up fighting all the time. They both want to be involved. They both want to be doing everything. There's control issues. There's trust issues. And it ends up being a bad situation, not because they didn't agree to invest together, because they didn't agree to invest together. And now they can't figure out how to make it work. How to make it work. Yep. I never thought about that, but go ahead. Go ahead. Keep going. Yeah, so th th and that was my wife and me. Like from day one, we knew we wanted to work together. We supported each other. We had the same vision and goals. But for the first year or two, we butted heads a lot. We fought a lot. And what we realized was we're both type A personalities. We're both very much, we like to be in control. We like to make decisions. So every decision on every project ended up being a battle. She thought she was right. I thought I was right. We would, we would take different sides just because we like to fight and argue and be right. <laughs> and what we ultimately realized, and, and, and a lot of it was what she ultimately realized was there was no reason for this. She was really good at certain aspects of, of house flipping and investing. I was really good at certain aspects of house flipping and investing. And luckily, they were two very different aspects. She was good at the networking and the negotiating and the marketing and the selling and the design. I was really good at the, well, I don't know what I was good at, but I, I guess I was good. <laughs> I, I was good at the, at the spreadsheets and the yeah. numbers and the managing the contractors and the organization. And so what we realized was between the two of us, we were a perfect team. And instead of fighting over everything, I needed to start trusting her yep. in the stuff yep. she was good at. She needed to start trusting me in the stuff I was good at. And ultimately, we came to the realization that she should be making half the decisions with me having not no input, but no final say. She gets right. veto power over everything she's good at. I give veto power over everything I'm good at. And we start to trust each other to make the right decisions. The minute we did that, everything got better because she was always making the right decisions on the things she was good at. I was always making the right decisions on the things I was good at. And what we realized was not only did we stop fighting, but we started making better decisions. There you and go. That's when our, that's when our business took off. Wow. That's amazing. I mean, because I kind of went through some of those same struggles because I was always the entrepreneur and my wife, she was always the person. Nope. We got to have some stability. Got to have his nine to five W2 income just in case something don't work out. And then going through COVID, you know, I took some time to really sit down with her and showed her everything that I was doing. And I even had a, a case study with her because I had, we were doing some wholesaling. And I was like, okay, here's some leads. I want you to follow up on these leads because she loved talking on the phone, excellent communicator and everything like that. And then within the first 30 days, you know, she had two deals and she had made like 17 grand. And she was like, oh, wow. Okay. I understand you know, what you're talking about now and how you do it. So now she understands, you know, sometimes what I'm doing when I'm doing it. And she's working in other areas and other capacities of the business with me. So yeah, guys, sometimes you just have to understand and know, hey, what's Jay's super superpower? What's Carol's superpower? Let them both be great at that. And then, hey, when we come together, it's Wonder Twins activate, you know. That's exactly right. <laughs> I'm telling my age a little bit there, but <laughs> that's how it happens. I'm right there with you. <laughs> so, Jay, let's take a quick break. We'll hear a word from my sponsors. And then when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about, you know, kind of estimating rehab costs, finding contractors, and then how you scaled up to doing bigger deals. So let's take a brief break. We'll hear a word from my sponsors, and we'll be right back. PropString is the industry's number one tool for locating distressed properties and connecting with highly motivated sellers. With 100% coverage across the U.S., PropString provides a deep dive into any property's specific details, making it easy to generate lists of distressed properties and contact to the owners. No other product or service can compare. Gain access to MLS property details like expired listings, 
You can pull accurate comps, even sell prices in non-disclosure states. This information is typically reserved for licensed real estate professionals, but is also available to you in PropStream. Gain access to unlimited nationwide property search, comparable home sales, targeted marketing lists, and owner contact lookup, built-in marketing tools, hundreds of filters to search and sort leads. Start your free seven-day trial now by going to proud.propstreampro.com slash we love it. All right, guys, welcome back. We are here with Jay Scott. Jay is based out of Florida, Sarasota, Florida. He has done hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of flips. Him and his uh, wife, Carol, are partners, and now they're scaling up to do uh, bigger things as far as passive income investing. But before we touch on that, Jay, I know you wrote some books for Bigger Pockets, and one of them was, I believe, How to Estimate Rehab Costs. Is that correct? Yep, that's okay. correct. So one of the problems that a lot of people have, especially those getting started, is saying, you know, how do I estimate the rehab cost? Because, you know, the formula is, you know, the acquisition, you know, minus the rehab, minus this, minus that, minus that equals your ARV. So how can a person, and I know this is a very broad question, but in your book, how can a person kind of estimate rehab costs and start to learn how to estimate rehab costs? Yeah. Uh, so I, I, I hate this question. I should love this question because this is what I wrote a book about, but I hate this question because I always let people down uh, when I have to tell them that there are no shortcuts. Yep. There's no easy way to learn how to estimate rehab costs. Now, on the bright side, if there was an easy way to estimate rehab costs accurately, everybody and their brother would be in real estate. Yeah. You'd be competing with the whole world. Yep. Because this is literally the hardest part of the business, whether you're doing single family or multifamily, or whether you're doing wholesaling or rentals or whatever you're doing in real estate, if estimating were easy, the whole thing would be easy. Yeah. But this is, this is the hardest part. This is, this is where money is made and money is lost. And so what I tell people is, if you want to be great in real estate, this is your opportunity to differentiate. This is your opportunity to learn a skill that will allow you to differentiate yourself from the other 95% of investors out there who don't know this skill nearly well enough. If you want to estimate rehab costs, it's a methodology and it's a relatively involved methodology. What I do and the way I estimate costs and, and the methodology I laid out in my book is I broke a house up into 25 pieces. Mm. So there are Exterior parts of the house, so things like the roof and the gutters and the siding and the windows and the landscaping and the foundation. There are interior parts of the, of the structure. There's the electrical and the plumbing and the HVAC and the sheetrock and the paint and the flooring and the cabinets and all those things. And then there are the big things like the structural and the mold and the termites and all of those things. You put all those things together and you get 25 components of a house. A house is made up essentially of these big 25 components. And when you go to estimate the cost of renovating a property, the best way to do it is to take each of these big components and do a formal and a thorough inspection and figure okay. out what needs to be repaired or changed within each of those 25 components. Now, typically anything you do on a, on a renovation is going to fall into one of two categories. It's either going to be something that is functionally broken, something that needs to be fixed for the house to be functional, or it's going to be an aesthetic issue. It's going to be something that doesn't look as good as it could or, or just yeah, doesn't look as good as it could. So these are the two things you're looking for. You're looking for the functional and you're looking for the aesthetic. Now, for these 25 components, how do you figure out what the functional issues are and what the aesthetic issues are? Well, luckily, we have ways to do that. For the functional issues, if you hire an inspector, you can go out and hire an inspector for 250, 350, 400 bucks to come in and do a full inspection of your house. What they're going to do is they're going to look at those 25 components. They may not name them exactly the same, mm -hmm. but what they're going to do is they're going to look at those, those 25 components of the house and they're going to tell you where there are functional issues. They're going to tell you where there are code issues with your electrical system, where there are plumbing problems, um, where there's a hot water heater that's starting to leak, where there's a roof that's coming towards end of life. They're going to tell you all the functional issues for each of those components in your house. 
Then if you bring in a good designer or real estate agent or other investor who knows the market, yeah. they're going to be able to look at all the aesthetic things and they're going to be able to say, well, if you want to sell this house, the house down the street just sold for $280,000. If you want to sell it for two eighty, dollars you need to have granite countertops because they had granite countertops. They had really nice hardwood floors, so you're going to need nice hardwood floors. They had these white shaker cabinets, so you probably want these white shaker cabinets. Yep. And so they're going to tell you what you need to do aesthetically, not functionally, aesthetically to make the house appealing to whatever the buyers are in that neighborhood and to get the comps for that particular property to the other houses that have sold recently in that neighborhood. So between an inspector who can tell you all the functional things that are wrong and a good real estate agent or designer who can tell you all the aesthetic things that are wrong, you now have a list of all the things you need to do to this house within those 25 components. And now your job is to take that list and get a cost associated with each one. Okay. And for each, each item on this list, there's going to be two costs. There's going to be a labor cost and a material cost. You're going to have to hire somebody to do, do the work, and then you're going to have to pay for the materials for them to do the work. Now, sometimes they throw these costs together. So for example, if you have to replace a roof, the roofer is going to supply all the materials. So it's going to be one yeah. cost. Yep. But in other cases, you're going to want to supply the materials yourself. Let's say you're changing a light fixture. Well, you're going to want to hire an electrician to change the light fixture, but you probably want to buy that light fixture yourself. So you have to factor in the cost to change it and the cost to, to buy the materials. So for each of these items on your list, each of these functional items, each of these aesthetic items, you're going to put a labor cost and a material cost. And then at the end of the day, it's all, it's just adding it up. You might have a hundred line items on your list for these 25 components of things you need to do. And for each of those hundred line items, you're going to have a labor cost, a material cost, you add it up and there's your rehab estimate. And the hard part is one, learning all the things that, that you might possibly have to do for those 25 components. And then number two, once you figure out what you have to do, getting those prices. And there are shortcuts, there are, there are, there are methodologies for doing both those things. Yep. And so in the, in the book, I talk about it at length for each of the 25 components. Here are the most common 10 or 50 things you might have to do for that component. And then here, depending on your area, is a price range for the labor and the materials to actually do those things. So it kind of gives you a head start on building what we call that scope of work, that list of stuff that you need to do and the cost associated with, associated with each one. So guys, Jay have it all laid out in his book, How to Estimate Rehab Costs. So take some time, go over there, get the book, read it, especially if you're planning to be, well, anybody, you know, like you said, Jay, fix and flipper, rehabber, wholesaler, landlord, multifamily guy or gal, you need to make sure you learn how to estimate rehab costs. One of the things that I tell people and then one of my business associates tell people, especially getting started is go shopping, you know, take Absolutely. a, take a pen in the pad, go to Home Depot, go to Lowe's or something like that. And just look at, Hey, what's the price per square foot for tile? What's the price per square foot, you know, for granite countertops or, you know, what's, how much is a vanity? It's free to go shopping. You don't have to pay for these things. That way you can at least get a product priced on some of these items. Will you be exact? Absolutely not, but you can have that ballpark kind of figure. Yeah. If you're looking in a neighborhood at certain types of houses, go have your real estate agent show you another house in that neighborhood that's listed for sale that's been renovated and yep. start snapping pictures and then go to Lowe's or Home Depot or Amazon or wherever you want and say, okay, let's see how much that light fixture costs. Let's see how much that plumbing fixture costs. Let's see how much that flooring costs. Let's see how much the cabinets cost and the, and the countertops. And basically look at the price of all of those things. That will give you an idea of how much it will cost to do a cosmetic rehab of that caliber in your neighborhood. Yep. Now, that doesn't factor in, again, all of the stuff behind the scenes. Maybe you have exactly. to replace the water heater. Maybe <laughs> you have to replace the plumbing. But that's going to get you halfway there. Yep. And so, and, and that's, that's kind of the key. A lot of, a lot of people, one of the bigger mistakes I see uh, new investors make is that they over-renovate or under-renovate. They say, I would only live in this house if I had these high-end finishes, and then they do too much. Yep. Or they say, I want to save money and do the cheapest thing possible, and then they don't do enough. Remember, you, don't you can't decide both how you're going to renovate and how much you're going to sell for. 
You get to decide one of those two things. <laughs> you can pick your renovation level and that will dictate what you sell the house for. Or you can say, I want to sell the house for this amount. And that will dictate what you have to put in the house. There you go. And so, so typically we, we want to start with, let's figure out how we want to renovate the property. And then that will dictate what we sell it for. And the best way to do that is go look at other houses in the neighborhood that are similar style, sim similar age, similar vintage, will likely have a similar buyer profile and look at the, the materials they use. Look at the, the condition of the property, the quality of the work that was done. What didn't they do? So if you find that, okay, they left the old carpet, mm -hmm. but it's still sold for whatever you were planning to sell for, well, maybe you don't have to spend a whole lot of money on, on flooring where flooring. you thought you otherwise would have. Maybe they have laminate countertops instead of granite and they were still able to command a high price. Well, now you know, maybe you don't have to spend as much on, on granite countertops. Or maybe you say, hey, I'm going to put in nicer flooring and nicer countertops. And that'll allow me to increase the price that I sell it at, or it'll allow me to sell the house faster. Faster. Yep. Yep. There you go. There you go. So guys, that was just a brief overview, you know, of how to estimate those rehab costs. Definitely go and get the book, you know, and, and I'm, I'm a big component of or proponent of reading so go and get the book because not only that it'll generate other ideas you know so and then also one of the things that i tell people is go to home depot or lowe's early in the morning you know get there when they open up and see what contractors are coming in and out get those names and those telephone numbers of contractors or ask the home depot reps you know who are some of the quality contractors that come through here and that way you can start building that building that pipeline of contractors to use, you know, who does the best flooring, who does the best tile, who does the best, you know, painting, things like that. So you got to start in point guys. So get out there and make it happen. <laughs> so Jay, now you have plenty of success doing hundreds of flips. I know you said like 500 flips or something like that. Why did you decide to pivot? Because you are already going down this great road. Why did you decide to pivot and start going into the multifamily space? Yeah, so it actually wasn't a pivot. For me, it was, I stopped flipping houses back around 2017. Didn't tell right. a lot of people this. I didn't advertise it, but I burned out. We were doing right. a lot of deals a year. We were, doing, we were in multiple markets and flipping houses is great, but- it's easy to burn out. There's a lot of moving parts and there's a lot of frustrations and there's a lot of stress when you do it at scale. And after doing it for about 10 years, I, I said, I just, I don't want to do this anymore. And so 2017, I said, I'm taking a break. And, and I thought about getting out of real estate completely. I thought about going and doing some other business stuff, but I said, look, I'm, I'm just going to stop for the time being and then we'll figure out what's going on. So that was 2017, about six to 12 months later, what I realized was I had a bunch of cash sitting around that I wanted to invest. And normally I was using that cash for my flips, but once all my flips sold, I had a bunch of cash in the bank and I'm trying to figure out what to do with it to kind of keep my money working yeah. for me. And so somebody suggested, well, you know, there are people out there that do syndications. And syndications are basically really large deals where the investor brings in passive investors, people with money to fund the deal. So they do all the work and then they bring in people with money to fund the deal completely passively. And oftentimes these are deals in the 10 or 20 or $50 million range. They might bring in a hundred people with a uh, with hundred thousand dollars each. And there's your $10 million to fund the yep. deal. They give good returns. Why don't you go take some of your money and invest in a couple of these syndication deals? I said, ah, that's interesting. I had, I had heard of that. I knew a couple of people that were doing that. So I did. I started investing in a couple of syndication deals and they did really well. I mean, stuff has done well for the last few years. So it was hard not to do well. And about a year later, a year after I did that, you know, I love investing in these syndication deals because I'm getting really good returns. It's passive. The problem is I'm a control freak. I like to, I like, I, I, there's, there's some, there are some people out there that invest that I really trust. I know well, I really like them, but at the end of the day, I like to have control over my deals. Yep. So I said to myself, how can I like get back to the point where I have control, but I'm still doing these, these cool syndication deals. And the answer was, I need to start doing the syndication deals myself. I need to operate them. Mm -hmm. And while I might bring in other investors to invest with me, I can also invest in my own deals. 
So this kind of gives me both sides. It gives yep. me the place to put my capital, a place to invest my own capital, but it also gives me the control over the deal and the insight into the deal that helps me sleep better at night. So 2018, I reach out to a friend of mine, Ashley Wilson, who is a successful multifamily investor. And I said, hey, I'd love to get into this business just as a place to, to put my own capital, do a couple of deals. Will you teach me the ropes? And she was excited. We had, we had talked about working together for years, but we just never found the opportunity. Took me under her wing. I spent about a year, year and a half teaching me the multifamily business. And then in 2019, we, we got our first multifamily deal together. She said, look, I'll partner with you. I'll teach you. Like literally we'll go from, from, from looking at offers to five years later selling the deal. We can do it all together. And I was like, great. So we did our first deal Wait. last year. Said again. No, I said sweet, sweet. Yeah, it, it was awesome. And what we realized was going through that process, and it's, it's quite a different process. This was a 150 unit deal, $220 million, quite a bit more involved than, than doing due diligence on a flip deal. Yeah. But what we realized going through the process together was we were fantastic partners. Much like my wife and me, Ashley and I have very complementary skills. She's really good at certain things. I'm really good at, at other things. We really enjoyed working together. So after we completed the purchase of this deal, we said, hey, why don't we work together as partners long-term? Why don't we build a business in multifamily syndication? And so starting last year, Ashley and I started working together and we have recently launched a, a new business where we're looking to kind of focus on multifamily syndication, scale up buying apartment complexes. And so that's what I'm, I'm focused on these days. Okay. All right. Where's, where's Ashley based out of? She's in Philadelphia. So okay. I'm in Florida. Okay. She's in Philadelphia. And most of the work we do is in the Midwest in Texas. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. So yeah, that's, that's interesting. But one of the key things that you said that a lot of people need to hear, and then I don't want to gloss over is you said, you know, if this is something that I want to do, how can I find the person that's doing it? And yep. how can I work with them? How can I bring value to them while they're bringing value to me? hundred percent. I mean, when I approached Ashley, I'm just like, let me work for you for a year. Let me do a deal with you. I don't need anything out of it. I just want to learn because Obviously, like I said before, I can read a million books. I'm going to learn more doing that first deal than, I'll read, than I will reading any book or every book. And so when she said to me, look, I'd love to teach you. And no, I'm not going to, you don't need to do it for free. I'm going to pay you or give you equity for any work you do. I was like, okay, bonus. That's I'm, even I'm, better. Yeah. 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 There's, there, it's a win-win. And so literally I, I, at that moment, I said, okay, this is where I'm going to be focusing my time. And again, she took me under her wing. She found places that I could contribute that were really within my wheelhouse. So I could learn the business from that side, but I could also watch her and the things she was good at and learn the business from that side. And it's been a great partnership so far. And, and it's hard to find good partners in this business, but when you do cherish them, treat cherish. them like gold, because, yep. because a great partner can make the difference between like long-term success and, and failure. Absolutely. So Jay, what were some of those struggles that you guys went through on that first syndication deal that, you know, if you wouldn't have had Ashley, you probably wouldn't have survived it. So what we realized or what I realized, and, and this was, this was humbling in the single family world. I had enough of a name and a brand that if I wanted to get in front of somebody, let's say it was a real estate agent or a broker or a bank or another investor, I could pick up the phone and say, hey, it's Jay Scott. I'm the bigger pockets guy that wrote yep. these books. I've done all these flips. Um, and they'd be excited. Yeah, let's go to lunch. Let's do this. And, and, and I could get anybody on the phone. And it was a really good feeling. And so I assumed in the multifamily world, like I could do the same thing. Same I could thing. pick up the phone. I could, I could call a broker and say, hey, this is Jay Scott. You might not know me, but let me tell you who I am. And then start sending me some great deals. And what I realized was in the multifamily world, nobody cares who Jay Scott is. Nobody cares yeah. who any single family investors are. You could, you could own a million single family houses and they don't care. All they care about is when was the last time you did a multifamily, multifamily yep. and what makes me think you can actually execute on this. I, I don't care if you bought 500 single family houses. That doesn't tell me you can execute on a $20 million multifamily deal. And so the, the, the value that Ashley was able to bring was that credibility. She had done deals before. And again, the brokers, that's all they care about. In the multifamily yep. world, in the single, okay, let's start with the single family world. In the single family world, if I call an agent and say, hey, like send me deals, if I put in an offer and then I don't perform, 
eh, that sucks. They're going to have to go remarket the property and, and find another buyer. But at the end of the day, I mean, it's, it's just a little bit of frustration for them. Yep. In the multifamily world, if a broker gets a property, a, a selling broker, so somebody that represents the seller gets a property under contract and the buyer doesn't perform, that broker is going to be ostracized. That broker did a bad job of vetting yeah. the buyer. And these, these sales can take months. These sales can take years. And the buyers need to get in to do inspections of every single unit. The seller needs to put together pro formas and, yep. and T12 and rent rolls. And so a seller may have dozens or hundreds of hours invested in a deal with a buyer. If that buyer doesn't perform, well, that seller is going to be out a whole lot of time and a whole lot of money. And the broker that brought that buyer may yeah. never work again in that town. So the most important thing to a multifamily broker is they want to know that you can perform. And the best way to prove that you can perform is to have actually bought Performed. another deal. Yep. So it, it's hard to get that very first deal on your own. And that's what having a great partner or a great mentor is, is valuable for in the multifamily world, because I could go and say, hey, I'm just Jay Scott. You don't care about me. You don't care about anything I've done. But here's my partner who actually owns 600 units and $70 million in real estate. They've closed a bunch of these in your market. That gets their attention. So that was, for me, the, the, the tremendous value of having a partner that was ingrained in that space and, and had credibility and reputation. There you go. I mean, like you said, that credibility is, is it opens up the doors for you. And, and yeah. it was great that you was able to find the right partner. And then again, you was able to find that partner because you said, Hey, what service can I provide for you? What can I bring to the table yeah. that can help you and your business? I'm not looking for anything, but yeah. what can I do to learn? You know? Yeah. So guys, remember that when you're approaching you know, mentors and things like that. Don't always look at it from your perspective, but look at what, what's the value you can offer them. So Jay, man, give, I'm give, give, give value today. You'll get value tomorrow. There you go. There you go. So Jay starting this new venture, man, what are you extremely excited about in the real estate space and what you're doing? So I'm really excited about the new challenge. I mean, for me, like I said, I've been doing single family for, for a decade and while it was fun trying to scale and grow the business, I got burned out and it got stale, it got old. And it really, it's felt like a, a decade since I've had any real new challenges. And I know a lot of people like to do what they're good at and keep doing what they're good at. I like the challenge and I'd rather take a risk doing something I haven't done before because it's new and exciting than do something that I know I can keep doing just because it's going to make me more money. So I'm really excited about learning. I'm really excited about the challenge. And for the first time, I'm really excited about growing something that's bigger than me. My wife and I decided early on that with flipping houses, we didn't want to build a conglomerate. We didn't want to build a billion dollar business. We wanted to build a lifestyle business. We wanted to build something that would allow us to put our kids first, wow. allow us to put our family first. Our kids are now getting older. Our kids are now approaching their teenage years. My wife is still full-time mom and focused on the family. So for the first time, I feel like I kind of had this opportunity to go out and build something big and to okay. kind of put that that not necessarily ahead of my family, but to put that closer uh, to where I put my family and, and, and really build a legacy for my family and my kids. That's awesome, Jay. That's awesome. And, it, and it's good seeing your trajectory, how you went from, you know, leaving your corporate job and, and learning the ins and outs of single family and flick and flipping and mastering that and then saying, you know what? This is similar to my job that I had back in the Bay Area. And now I want to change because it's getting stale. So I want to challenge myself again. Yep. And you jumped into something extremely new. And not everybody is willing to do that. Like you said, they say, hey, you know what? I'm good at this. I'm going to stick, stick right here and I'm going to continue to master this. But you decided to challenge yourself. So kudos to you, man. So I appreciate it. Kind of wrapping up here, we're going to put Jay on the hot seat, on the hot seat. So Jay, starting over, what would you do differently, if anything? Best piece of advice I have for everybody out there. When I was starting out flipping houses, I did what everybody does. I, I reached out to a couple of investors that were big doing it in my area. And I said, can I take you to lunch? 
took some people to lunch. One guy I took to lunch, I don't even remember his name, but I asked the question you always ask. So if you could do things differently, what would you do? Same question you just asked me. I asked him and he said to me, he said, I've been doing this a long time. My biggest regret in this business is every house I've ever sold. I wish I would never have sold anything ever. And I think at that point, I just kind of laughed and said, I'm flipping houses. I'm making like 20K (laughs) a deal or 30K a deal, which was a lot back then. Um, Like, like, yeah, that's great. I appreciate that advice. That's not for me. Here we are 12 years later. And my biggest regret in this business is every house I've ever sold. Literally, I think back and, and if I would have kept, not that I could have reasonably kept every house I ever bought, but let's say theoretically, I could have kept every one of those flips until today. My net worth would be about $40 million higher, literally $40 million higher if I would have kept every one of those flips. So looking back, if I were to do it over again, for every two flips I did, I would have kept a rental. Or maybe every three flips I did, I would have kept a rental. And I would have started building a portfolio a lot sooner than I did. Okay. Because a lot of people, they, they forget the reason why they get into real estate. And a lot of them, it's because of lifestyle. Hey, I don't want to go to work. I want to be able to vacation. want to be able to be with my family, you know, but still have income coming in. And the only thing that can do that is passive income. And that's either, you know, real estate owner rentals, owning apartments, you know, or stock investing, something like that. But a lot of people see the sexiness of fixing and flipping, wholesaling, and and it's a transactional business and you're running, you're making moves, but it's just another job, you know? So that's one of the things that I say too. Hey, I wish I would have kept some of the houses that we flipped and wholesaled and I would have a larger net worth. Okay. Yep. What do you a couple, keep a couple, flip a couple, keep a couple. There you go. Yep. Keep that money generating and then have that passive income coming in. You got it. What is one of the characteristics you believe every successful or high producing investor have to have? Well, you said it earlier, but I'm going to repeat it because it's true. Persevere. In this business, especially these days, it can be tough to get that first deal. It can be tough to get that next deal. It's really easy to give up. And the only difference between successful investors and those that never make it is, is perseverance. It's not giving up. Anybody can do this business. Anybody can be successful in this business. You just have to stick it out until you make it. And so for me, it's, it's, it's really, it's, it's that simple. Never give up. There you go. So perseverance, perseverance. So Jay, man, you, you've written plenty of books. Share with us some of your books, man, so people can go you know, to Amazon, to BP, wherever they want to go and get these books that you've written? Yeah. So I I like to write books that I can either, one, I think you're better than anything that's out there on the topic, or I just can't find anything on the topic out there that's worth reading. The first book I wrote was the book on flipping houses, which I read a lot of flipping houses books. And most of them were, were they were good, but they were mostly stories and mindset and and getting Mm -hmm. people excited about flipping houses. I really wanted to write something that was tactical. Step one, step two, step three. And so I ended up writing a book called The Book on Flipping Houses, which is basically 20 steps to getting your first deal. As I was writing that, one of the chapters was how to estimate rehab costs. I think it was like chapter 14 or step number 14 in that book. And I started writing and writing and writing. And that ended up being a 200-page chapter. (laughs) we have this book that's like a 200 page book and one of the chapters is 200 pages itself so i split that out i split out the book on estimating rehab costs which was originally a chapter in the book on flipping houses i released those two books together back in 2013 and again if it doesn't matter if you're doing a a twenty thousand dollar mobile home or a 50 million dollar apartment complex the methodology for estimating rehab costs is the same so that's the book on estimating rehab costs a couple of years later, what I realized was there were no good books out there on negotiating. Okay. And a lot of our success, my wife and I, has been because we're really good negotiators, especially she's an amazing negotiator. But there were no negotiating books specifically in real estate. So he said, let's write that book. So my wife and I, with a co-author, Mark Ferguson, wrote the book on negotiating real estate a couple of years ago, all about how to, to get more deals and better deals through good negotiation. I'm very proud of that book. Okay. And then one of my hobbies is economic. I'm, I'm an economics geek. And so a couple of years ago, I said, there's no good books out there 
for real estate investors on how the economic cycle works and how economics works. And so I wrote a book called Recession Proof Real Estate Investing, which is all about how economic cycles work and how we as real estate investors can change up our investing strategies and tactics throughout different parts of the, the economic cycle to maintain and increase our profits throughout that part of the cycle. Wow. So four great books right there, guys, from the novice investor learning how to flip a house all the way to a seasoned investor want to learn about market cycles and things like that in real estate. So go out, get those books. I'll have some links in the show notes to the books. That way you guys can go and get them. Jay, again, is very seasoned investor. So you want to learn from some people that have been there and done that before and not just talking about it. So, and Jay is one of those guys and a very good guy. So Jay, in parting, man, give us some words of encouragement that you would want to share with someone that, that maybe hit that bump in the road and they're on the fence saying, okay, well, I don't know if I can continue on or should I turn back and go to my corporate job? Give us some words of encouragement. Yeah. So this, this goes back to the perseverance. Here's probably the single most important lesson I've learned over the years. I've talked to literally thousands, maybe tens of thousands of investors over the years at conferences, over email, lunch, everywhere. And what I found is there are two types of investors. There's the 99% of investors who never, ever do a deal. Yep. They give up before they get to that first deal. Then there's the 1% of investors who I meet who have done five and 10 and 50 and 100 deals. You know who I never meet? You know the type of investor I never meet? I never meet anybody who's done one deal. Because wow. in this business, if you do one deal, you're going to do that second pretty quickly. Yeah. And that third even faster and that fifth and that 10th and that 100th even faster than that. Nobody stops at one deal. A lot of people, most people stop at zero deals but nobody stops at one. And if you can get that one, I promise you, you're going to find that you've created a career for yourself that you can leverage for the rest of your life. So don't think this is too hard. I can't do it. I'm going to get that first deal. And then I have to start over and do this. No, you don't. Because you get that first deal, everything falls into place. And you're going to get that second deal so quickly yeah. after that, that third deal so quickly after that. So if I were to give one piece of advice, don't quit until you get that first deal. If you get that first deal and you still want to quit, then quit, but you won't. Nobody does. So get that first deal and, and then make that decision if you want to quit. Or not. Words of wisdom from Mr. Jay Scott. Thank you so much, Jay. Those were excellent words of wisdom. So guys, you know it. If you're, if you're right there and you haven't done a deal, the only thing you need to do is that first one. That first one is usually the hardest. And like Jay said, after that, two comes right around the corner, then three, then four, and then you're ready to scale and build a team and everything like that. So stick with it, have the perseverance to get from zero to one. And then after that, the sky is the limit. So Jay, I want to appreciate you, man, for being here. Share with us. I know you're going to be uh, in New Orleans in October. Kind of give us some, some background on that for those who want to come out and see you. Yeah, so Bigger Pockets is doing their second Bigger Pockets conference in New Orleans first week in October. I'll be speaking there. My partner Ashley will be speaking there. My wife and 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 my life partner and business partner Carol will be speaking there, and so many other amazing speakers. Come out, visit us, introduce yourself because I'd I'd love to meet you. And if anybody wants to connect with me, anybody might want to invest with us, go to connectwithjscott.com. And uh, that'll link out to my website and, and everywhere else you can connect with me on social media and, and my email address and everything else. All right. There you have it, guys. So the first week of October, don't meet us there. Beat us there at the Bigger Pockets Conference 21. I will be there. So you'll get a chance to meet me. You'll get a chance to meet meet Jay and the other speakers and the other participants. And the good thing about these conferences, not just meeting the speakers, but meeting other peers that are kind of going through some of the same things that you guys are going through. And a lot of times you find partners in your own community and in your own state right there at these different conferences. So it's not just the topics that are there, but it's what you learn and what you glean from just by meeting those other people and making connections. So the first week of October, that's the Bigger Pockets Conference 2021 in New Orleans, Louisiana. 
meet Jay there. He'll love to meet you. Awesome. Thanks, Marcus. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you, Jay. Guys, you know what to do. Take the action, run with it, and go and get started. Remember, remember, remember to always enjoy the journey while you're doing it. All right, guys, that was Mr. Jay Scott. Again, he's a very big Bigger Pockets contributor. I haven't had a chance to meet him yet, but I will in New Orleans. But I read a ton of his content, a ton of his articles and his books and vice versa. So guys, the information is out there. Like I always tell you, you can always find the information. You can always find the content. But what you have to do is you have to go out there and you have to do it. Jay said it very, very clear. He said he's never met one person that have only done one deal. Once you get that first deal done, you'll continue to do more and more and more and more. I remember when I got started, it was an eight to nine month struggle for me to get my first deal done. But I knew and I persevered. I knew once I get this first one done, I know that I'll be able to take what I learned from the first one and do the second and the third and the fourth. So guys, again, don't give up. If you're at this brink and you're saying, hey, I'm, I'm trying to get this deal done and it falls apart or I get to the finish line and something happens, that is just life telling you, you got to work a little bit harder. You got to connect with a little bit, a few more people, and you will get over that hump and you'll get that deal done. And remember, you'll look back and you'll say, wow, I remember my first deal struggles because I remember mine. I remember putting in offers on properties and doing direct mail and getting cussed out and putting a property under contract at market value and buyers laughing at me and everything like that. But I am so thankful for those experiences that I went through because now I can share those experiences with you. And it gives me a greater sense of gratitude now when we do each deal going forward. So guys, take the information, get out there and do something with it. You have the four books that Jay mentioned, which is going to be in the show notes. You have the four mistakes that he made. He overpaid on his first property. He underestimated the rehab on his first deal. He underestimated the holding cost on his first deal and underestimated the uh, resale, well, overestimated the resale value of the property. So he made four key critical mistakes in the four key critical areas that you can't make mistakes and still had success. So guys, that is there to let you know that no matter what mistakes you make, you can still be successful. You just have to learn from those mistakes. All right, guys, thank you so much for being a listener. Thank you so much for being here. Remember, go to YouTube, you know, subscribe. That's youtube.com slash MRCS Maloney. Go to Instagram at MRCS Maloney, Facebook at MRCS Maloney. Be a subscriber of the show. If you haven't subscribed to the show, we will welcome you into the family. Come on, learn from all of the hundreds of investors that I'm talking to and the thousands of deals that they're doing and that I'm doing and be a part of the family so you can get the key education that you're looking for. So remember to always get out there, enjoy the journey. I will see you and you will hear from me on next week. Thank you for listening to today's show. I picked up some great actionable items and I'm sure you did as well. If so, let me know. You can always reach me via social media at facebook.com slash MRCS Maloney, Twitter at MRCS Maloney, and of course, IG at MRCS Maloney. You can also always reach me via email at mmaloney at equityri.com. Make sure you reach out to our guest as well. You can always find their contact information in the show notes below. If you have not subscribed already, what are you waiting for? Join the family. And while you're at it, leave us a five-star review. This is how we tell if we're providing you with what you need for your journey. If there's someone you would like for me to interview, or if there's a subject matter you would like for me to cover, please let me know. Finally, if you're looking for additional information about real estate investing, go to equityrealestateblog.com, also youtube.com slash Marcus Maloney. Until next time, family, always enjoy the journey.